Gospel and Mercy Ministry and a little bit about his book, Tangible, um, that Jenny just got a free copy of. So um, that's, that's good to go. Okay. Anyway, so without further ado, Chris Dix. Thanks. I really love RUF and uh, loved hanging out with you. I'm on the RUF committee, so I know Logan and Christy, and I love, uh, I just love what you guys do. So, um, but I have a story, it's a true story. I want to tell you about a general over in the Syrian army. And you may have heard of him, I'm not going to tell you his name yet. He's fairly well known. He is a very powerful man in Syria. He is a vicious leader of their armies, led many successful campaigns. He's very sick. He's achieved great things, but he has this disease that causes neuropathy. It causes his fingers and his toes to be numb. And he's honored as a war hero. He's been rewarded generously for all of his victories. But his sickness has been getting worse. And there's actually a prisoner of war who works as a servant in his household. And this prisoner of war got up the nerve to talk to the general's wife and say that there is a cure for this disease, but it's in enemy-held territory. It's over in Israel. And the general is so desperate for a cure that he goes and gets a letter, an official letter demanding that the Israelis give him a cure for this disease. But he knows he's asking his enemies for help. So just in case, in case the letter doesn't work, he brings $4 million and his staff and he travels to Israel to find the cure. And his fingers, which are numb and he can't even feel the bag of cash, are clinging tight to it on his way to Israel. This general's name is Naaman. And he is powerful, educated, has very few needs in his life, you would think, until leprosy came into his life. But leprosy for Naaman was a gift from God because it was leprosy that made an arrogant, self-absorbed, self-righteous, very successful man humble enough to receive God's mercy. So I'm going to tell you more about Naaman in a minute. But first I want to just defend that statement, because I don't know if you heard it, but this that something as bad as leprosy could actually be a gift from God. That something as bad as a disease that can be fatal could actually lead someone out of despair and unbelief into a trusting relationship with God. And that's what this book is about. That's what this book, Tangible, is all about, as Chris was talking about. It's a book about how God makes Himself visible. He makes His love and the very idea of compassion credible through the mercy that other human beings can show to one another. There's a connection between pain and our distrust of God. John Calvin, if you've heard of him, once said that the heart's distrust is greater than the mind's blindness. And the more I think about that, the more it makes sense to me that the heart's distrust is greater than our mind's blindness. I used to be an atheist. I was an atheist for 10 years when I was in college. 
And I understand how both our mind and our heart are involved. Can I turn that thing off now? How both our mind and our heart play a role in unbelief. It's not just a mind thing. It's a heart and a mind thing. And in fact, I think that the heart might be more of a factor with unbelief. Because it's your heart that says God can't be trusted. It's your heart that says if God was really there and He was really good, then why would my life be such a mess? Why would these bad things have happened to me? Why does pain exist at all? It's that distrust in our hearts that looks around at the world and sees what a mess it is. I mean, oppressed people oppressing each other. Children dying of disease, starvation, slavery, prejudice, pain. Why is everything such a mess? Especially when we have such technology and such wealth. Why is the world such a mess? Here's what I believe. Is that all human suffering is a result of a broken relationship with God. Every bit of human suffering you can think of is a result of a fractured relationship with God that started way back in the garden. Adam and Eve looked at God and said, we don't need you. We're, gonna, we're just going to take things on our own hands. We don't need you, God. And God's response was, actually, you do need me. And I'm going to give you thousands of painful reminders of what life is like without me. What life is like when our relationship is broken. All the pain and suffering in the world is the fruit of the fall. But these same bad things that show us that this relationship is fractured, those same bad things can also be used by God to draw us back to Him. And isn't that exactly what happened 2,000 years ago? What were the kind of people that were drawn to Jesus? Were they the healthy, successful people with no problems? It was the people whose lives were a mess. And they were drawn irresistibly to Jesus. The lepers who needed healing. The outcasts who needed restoration. The blind people who needed to see. Their physical suffering was tied to their spiritual hunger. There was a connection between the two. And they saw that Jesus was the answer to both their physical suffering and their spiritual hunger. And that's why He was irresistible. So, how about you? Pain, disappointment, maybe anybody, maybe none of you have never had pain and disappointment in your life. So if, if you've never had anything bad happen in your life, you can ignore the next few minutes. But any of you who've experienced any pain and disappointment in the world, does it cause you to run to God? Or doesn't it also sometimes cause you to run from Him because you don't know if you can trust Him? Suffering has caused lots of people to come up with lots of theories about why it exists. Buddhism, New Age philosophy, what do they tell you? They tell you suffering doesn't really exist. You should get over it because it's not real. Right? How insulting is that to somebody who's in real pain to say, actually, your pain's not real. You just need to rise above it. Pain is very real. But praise God, mercy is also very real. But how do people experience God's mercy? How do hurting people experience the mercy of God? The surprising answer is that the all-powerful creator of the universe uses people like you 
and me to show His mercy to hurting people. The pain in the world is very real, but that's why the body of Christ is here. Jesus' body is not here anymore. Um, in the book, I talk about an 82-year-old woman in my church who was in a hospital room um, with pneumonia, and there's a woman who's 25 years old in the room who's dying. And 82-year-old Jacqueline calls me and she's like, what do I do? I don't know what to do with this woman. And I was like, Jesus is not here. Jesus' body's not here, but yours is. So just hold her hand. Talk to her. Pray with her. Let Jesus use your hands and your mouth to love that young woman. So let's look how these things played out in Naaman's life. Um, he's going to put up Second uh, Kings 5. That's where Naaman comes from. So Naaman was a general in the Syrian army 3,000-something years ago. And he traveled to Israel. He had his $4 million in gold and silver. And he was going to see the prophet Elisha to get the cure because the little slave girl in his house said that Elisha could cure him. But when he gets to Elisha's house, Elisha sends out a servant. Elisha doesn't even come out of the house to talk to the great general. And Naaman's pride, his arrogance, is revealed in his response. If you look at verse 11, can you flip to the next page? Look at verse 11. Behold, I thought Elisha would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman was insulted that Elisha, the prophet, wouldn't come out to greet this great man who traveled all this way and instead just sends out a servant. And then Elisha's instructions are, you need to go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. And again, Naaman's arrogance and pride. He's like, what? I traveled all the way here from Damascus where we have a river cleaner than your muddy Jordan. If all I needed was a bath, why did I come all the way here? But that's one of the obstacles that stands in the way of faith, isn't it? Is that we either, A, we think we have all the answers, so we don't need to believe in God because we've got it all figured out. But then, when our, prop, when our answers aren't working out, when our way isn't making sense and God comes in with an answer, we say, no, I don't like that either. So where, where are you left? You, these obstacles that we throw up to faith will continue to block us until we become desperate enough to accept God's answers. And that's the place Naaman was. That's, that's the blessing that leprosy was to Naaman. He had no other answers. There was no other cure but to trust in what God's instructions were. So Naaman finally listens to his servants. Mighty Naaman gets in the river. He humbles himself and he's healed. He comes out of the river and his skin is clean as a baby's. And in that moment, the Lord restores not only Naaman's body, but also his soul. Look at verses 15 and 17. Because the, the physical healing leads to something else. The physical healing leads to... Um, I, I didn't give you 15 and 17. I'll read them to you. Then Naaman returned to Elisha after his healing. He and all his company, he came and stood before him and he said, Now I know. There is no God in all the earth but in Israel. You see the jump there? He didn't say, now I know that the Jordan River can clean leprosy. 
Now I know that Elisha is a credible guy to come to for leprosy. That's not what he went to. He was cleaned and he instantly believed in Yahweh because he saw the source of the power. He saw that his healing was tied to the existence and character of God. There was a connection between the physical deadness in Naaman's body and the spiritual deadness in his heart. And that's exactly what's true today. If you think about the addictions and the oppression, the dysfunction that causes the visible pain in the world today, they're all connected to a deeper spiritual pain. Like I said, oppressed people oppressing each other. Have you ever heard in counseling, they say that hurt people hurt people. People who've been hurt almost inevitably hurt other people. Our spiritual brokenness, our emotional brokenness expresses itself in breaking other people. But there is hope hidden even in painful places. Like I said, it, it was Naaman needed leprosy to expose his true problem. Because Naaman's heart was as numb as his fingers. And as bad as his leprosy was, his sin problem was the deeper, more critical problem because his soul would live much longer than that body that was scarred by disease. And so, the reason I even wrote this book is to help anybody figure out how to connect, how to make a connection between the deeds we show the deeds of compassion and mercy that so many people want to get out there. I'm sure many of you look around the world and you say, I want to do something about what a mess this world is. You want to get there and do something about the pain and the hurt in the world. But we also have to remember the source and the cause of it and address both the symptoms and the root cause of the world's pain. It's a connection between word and deed ministry. And when our words and our actions are congruent, they make a credible argument for the existence of God. Before Naaman could understand just how helpless he was, how helpless he was spiritually, he needed that problem that he would be helpless to solve. But the reason that's such a big problem for us is we hate to be needy. Don't we hate to be helpless? Don't we try so hard to look competent and pretend like we have it all together and we've got the answers? But it's actually through our need that God becomes visible to us. You know that Jehovah and Yahweh are two ways of saying God's name, His covenant name, which is I Am. And if you think about it, I Am is a very strange name. It's like an unfinished sentence. I Am what? The answer is, I am whatever my people need. God's name is like a blank check, and we fill it in with our needs. And He actually does that in the Bible. Jehovah Shalom means, I am your peace. Jehovah Jireh means, I am your provider. Naaman didn't need a provider, he had plenty. He didn't need peace, he made war. But what he needed was Jehovah Rapha, I am your healer. And when Naaman was healed, he saw God through the lens of his need. This has been true for my wife and I. My wife has stage 4 breast cancer. She's got two tumors on top of her brain. 
She was at the doctor's office today. Terrible headache. She's going in for an MRI tomorrow. We've known God for a while. We know, I've even taught about how God is called the Comforter. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about the Father of all comfort. Those are just words until you need comforting. And now my wife and I understand what it means that God is our comforter in a way we never knew before. Our needs are like eyeglasses that bring God into focus. Through Sarah's cancer, we have seen both the compassion and the concern and the love of God, and we've seen it clearly. And we've especially seen it through His people, through the way that His people have loved us well. And then, the compassion that God pours into us, He intends for us to then take it out. It's never just about us. When God does something big in your life, it's not just about you. He always has a purpose for it. That that 2 Corinthians 1 passage where he talks about the Father of all comfort. He says that God pours comfort into you so that you can bless others with the comfort you have received. And this all begins by being humble enough to go to God with your needs and to say, you're the one who can solve my needs. My way isn't working and I'm going to try it God's way. And whether it's something like leprosy or cancer that brings you to that point, whether it's midterms that are just crushing your brain, whatever it is that brings you to the point of saying, jumping in a muddy river doesn't make sense to me. Believing that a guy who died 2,000 years ago can take away my sin and pain, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I'm out of options. And none of the other answers I've tried have worked. And when you get to that point of helplessness and neediness in your life, and God's mercy becomes real to you, then He's got a job for you to go out and make that same mercy real to others. The way I like to think of it is, anybody a business major? That, you know, you think about the the supply chain. Think of it this way. God is the manufacturer of comfort and mercy. The Holy Spirit is the wholesaler of comfort and mercy. And we get to be the retailers. We take the mercy and comfort that God distributes to us and we take it out into the street, we put it on display, and we distribute it out to people. And then when people experience that mercy and comfort, we don't let them praise us for it. We point them back to the manufacturer. And we say, oh, you you think I care about you? No, no, no. Let me tell you about the God who cares about far more than just your day-to-day problems. He cares about your soul in eternity. And I want to tell you about them. When we do that, we get to show people God's names. God is known as an advocate in the Bible. But people won't see that until someone advocates for them. He is known as the defender of orphans. People don't see that until God's people get out there and adopt some orphans and see that God is actually bringing these orphans into households. When we do that and when we put the gospel into words and we point people back, we make 
the message. We make these words in the Bible. We make them tangible and credible so that people have an opportunity to believe. Just, I want to talk about the other main character in this passage in 2 Kings 5. Um, can you go back to the previous slide? So, she's not even named. And Elisha is not the other main character I'm talking about. It's not the prophet. It's the slave girl. There's this clear contrast in verses 1 and 2 between Naaman, who is a great man. What does it say about the girl? She's a little girl. Not just a girl, she's a little girl. She's a slave. She was captured in war. He is a man with great freedom, great independence, great power. She's a slave with no freedom, no independence, no power. And yet she's exactly the instrument that God chooses to use. And one of the things I take encouragement from that is it does not matter where you are. It doesn't matter why you're here or where you're going next. God can use you wherever you are. This girl could be used by God because she was different than the other slaves in Damascus who had been taken from other parts of the world. This girl grew up hearing about the God of the covenant, about the God who kept His promises. This girl attended Passover celebrations. She knew all about Yahweh's mighty deeds. And now she's out in the world. She's been deployed by God against her will to tell this Gentile general about the only true God. She didn't know how to cure leprosy, but she knew how to point Naaman to the cure. And I don't know how to solve the world's problems, and if any of you do, well then there's a Nobel Prize waiting for you. But you don't have to know how to solve the problems. You have to know the God who solves problems and point people to Him. And one of the things I love about this girl is her courage. That even though she was in a vulnerable position, you might think she couldn't get any more vulnerable being a slave, but she was working in a general's house. There are a lot of worse things for a girl in slavery to do than to work in one of the most prominent houses in Damascus. She could have just harbored hatred and bitterness against Naaman, who'd captured her and taken her from her homeland and maybe killed her parents. She could have said, yeah, I have an answer for him, but I'm not telling him, that jerk. But I wonder if she remembered what happened to Joseph when Joseph was in Egypt and how Joseph said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That she knew that there was a God who was working behind the scenes. And she would remember the way Joseph earned the respect of the leaders there in Egypt. And maybe that's how she got the right to serve the wife of a powerful general. My point isn't that she had a good life. She had a terrible life. But she did have something to lose. She took a risk. And maybe you're too scared to speak up. Maybe you're afraid of what you might lose. The friendship of somebody. The respect of somebody. Even lose a job someday. Lose a position. Because you talk about the God of all comfort and mercy. But there are needy people all around us. I think one of the things I draw from Naaman is that don't assume because somebody is dressed well and has a good position that they're not needy. Everybody has needs. Some people are just better at hiding them than others. Some of us cover them up really well. 
But the closer you get to people, if you're willing to move into their lives and actually get to know them and not interact just on the surface, talking about sports and clothes all the time, but when we actually get to know somebody and they feel safe enough where they start to open up their heart, those are the opportunities where we can walk in with real encouragement, real hope, real healing. And that's what this girl did. She was a light of hope, loving her enemy and speaking truth. And I I think she really foreshadows what Paul says centuries later in Romans 12. She says, "Repay no one." Paul says, "Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves." To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's what this little girl does. If I was was in her shoes, I would be angry at Naaman and angry at God. But she speaks up, and God honors her for what she does by putting her in His Word. I mean, I look forward to meeting this girl one day and finding out her name. She doesn't even get to have her name put in the Bible. But she's in there. Someday we're going to meet her. Proud, arrogant Naaman is pointed to his Savior by a humble little girl. But to receive that salvation, he first had to become as humble as a little child himself. He had to humble himself and take a bath in the muddy river. And that's true of everybody. To receive God's grace, we have to become as humble as a little child. I don't know what God has planned for all of you. I know He's a storyteller. He weaves marvelous stories in everybody's lives. And they're full of good things and bad things, but He's got a story that He's weaving and you get to co-author it with Him. And some of you are going to be called to work among powerful people like Naaman or be a powerful person like Naaman. Others of you are going to work among humble people like that servant girl. Some of you are going to end up working in a law firm or a big corporation somewhere, working at the Pentagon, Capitol Hill. And even there, there are Naamans whose hearts are broken, who are desperate to know the God of comfort and mercy. And you might be the person God is called to do there, to to do something about it. Some of you are not going to be called to Capitol Hill in the law firm. Some of you are going to go seek out girls in slavery. Some of you are going to go join the Peace Corps, enter the mission field, and work with people that have next to nothing. And they look more apparently needy. But they have the same spiritual brokenness that all of us have. It's just more evident... Maybe because of their physical brokenness. Whatever God calls you to, you will have more impact, more joy, and you will bring Him more glory if you yourself are relying on the true power like that girl was. That you don't get seduced by the power of this world, by fame, by money, by comfort. But you're recognizing that all of those things are fleeting and that true power only comes from God. Um, International Justice Mission, some of you have heard of them. They're over here in Crystal City. They are one of the most exciting organizations right now. group of Christians who are actually going out and rescuing people from slavery. It's a Christian organization that has earned such credibility because of the caliber of their work. Last year, Google gave them $10 million to a Christian organization because they said what you're doing is amazing. 
I was at a prayer meeting there a few months ago. The most amazing prayer meeting I've ever been to. Somebody gets up and says, uh, please pray for our team in Bangladesh. There are assassins trying to kill them. They're in hiding in a safe house right now. We're trying to get them out of the country. Pray for their safety. Somebody else stands up and says, we rescued 23 girls from a brothel in Manila yesterday. Some of them are in the hospital recovering. Please pray that we get them into a safe home and that they find healing for their body and soul. Someone else says, we've got an operation going on tomorrow. We're going to raid a plantation where there's 200 slaves in Uganda. Pray for the safety of the Ugandan police and for our team who are going in there. I mean, and the prayer requests kept going like we weren't praying about Aunt Mary's gout. I mean, that's the stuff we were praying about. It was amazing. And these people, these are some of the most talented people in Washington, D.C. IJM doesn't hire slouches. They hire very talented people. And every day, everybody stands up from their desk at 11 o'clock and they all go to a prayer meeting every single day. Because as talented as they are and as urgent and important as their work is, they know that they absolutely can't do these big things without God. And so I want to do big, bold things in this world. The world needs people who are going to get out there and do big, bold, crazy things. But we can't do it on our own. But when we have the God of all power behind us, leading us, within us, big, bold things can happen. Slaves can get freed. People with broken hearts can find healing. The poor can become rich. The blind can see. And people can actually find eternal life. And you just might have the opportunity to tell somebody about it. To do something with your hands and with physical deeds that then makes the words you speak about God credible and believable to someone whose pain has caused them to be very skeptical. So would you pray with me? God, thank You for these men and women You've gathered here. God, thank You for that little girl in Damascus thousands of years ago whose name we don't know yet. Thank You that although she did not have any power, she knew the God of all power. And she was willing to speak up and talk to this general who had come to the end of his rope, who had finally come to the place where he was willing to accept answers, even from a prophet servant in enemy-held territory. Lord, I pray that You would help all of us see You more clearly through our needs, through the lens of our helplessness, that it would cause us not to run further from You, but closer to You. Because we know that You are the One who can make broken things whole. That You can make broken people whole and complete. And I pray that You would use these men and women in their lives to do glorious big things for Your name's sake. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe there's some questions. Sure. So, um, one of the things, Chris's uh, 
has been very much involved with Mercy Ministry, kind of through his um, his career at Alexandria Presbyterian Church, and he's worked in a homeless shelter. He's um, done a lot of work with displaced peoples, like internationals that, that come over and they have nothing. Um, so I thought there might be some questions, and even maybe share briefly about how you came to faith, um, like as an atheist. Like, what, what was it that kind of swung you over? So I don't know. There might be some other questions. So, yeah. Uh, I'd actually like to know how you uh, came to faith. Sure. Um, I became a believer kind of the same way as most people. I read a science fiction novel written by a Mormon. <laughs> And uh, it, yeah, the same author, um, Orson Scott Card, uh, wrote a book called Ender's Game, which is about to be a movie. But he's got another book called The Memory of Earth, and uh, it's about this planet called Harmony. I'll give the short version, but on this planet called Harmony, um, there's a system of satellites that monitors the people to make sure they don't develop weapons of mass destruction, and uh, it can talk to people. And it's semi, it's sentient and it's semi-divine. And, uh, the people worship the Oversoul. Except these four brothers in this one family, their mom is like a priestess in the Church of the Oversoul, but these four brothers don't believe. And, uh, I'm reading this novel at like midnight in 96, and the two younger brothers eventually come to believe, and the two older brothers really resent this and think that they're just trying to get attention from mom. And as I finish, it's the first of a novel in a series. And I'm laying there. Now it's like one in the morning. And I can't go to sleep because I'm trying to figure out why the two older brothers wouldn't believe. Because it was so obvious the things that the Oversoul had done to bring the two younger brothers to believe. He did things in their life that made it obvious he existed and he cared. But the oldest brother was this handsome, strong, confident, arrogant, smug, proud man. And the second oldest brother was married, had a couple daughters, and all he did was chase other women around town and have affairs. And so these two men couldn't believe in the Oversoul because their gods were pride and lust. And as I was laying there with the full moon shining in my face, I realized that pride and lust ruled my life. That those were the things that drove all my decisions, and therefore they were my gods. And they weren't working. <laughs> and I needed something else. Like Naaman. I was helpless because the answers I had weren't working for me. And I'd heard, I'd heard uh, the Gospel many times. My best friend was started RUF at LSU. And uh, he went through seminary. And he was at LSU at the time. And he shared the Gospel with me when we were in the Army. And I'd heard it all. I just wasn't interested. Because I thought... My life was okay until it wasn't. So that night I went down to the Potomac River, not the Jordan River. I went down to the Potomac River and got on my knees and said, okay, I'm yours. Is there uh, any stories about like some of the maybe displaced peoples, you know, that maybe a brief story about someone that you've helped or what their life's been like? Sure. The coolest thing we've been doing at the church lately is working with refugees. There are every year about 80,000 refugees come to America. A lot of people, I didn't even know that until like 10 years ago. But 
People who've been displaced by war, by political or religious oppression, flee their country, and a small percentage get to come to the U.S. and resettle here. And we've sponsored um, 35 African asylees who've come to the country. Um, uh, one guy, just an example, uh, he was a federal judge in Ethiopia, and a case came before him where somebody was suing the government, and he said, the government's wrong. And the government said, oh yeah, you're wrong. <laughs> so he got beaten. Uh, his wife lost his job. He had to run for his life. Um, he traveled all the way to South Africa, got a job there until he was caught in a mob of xenophobes who didn't like people coming to South Africa to take their jobs. So he and his friend got beaten in South Africa. So then he flees to the U.S. and I meet him when he's living in a bus shelter. This guy who used to be a federal judge. But somebody in the church took him into his house. We got him in English classes. Um, and then uh, two years later when he had asylum, the deacons in our church flew his wife and three daughters here to the U.S., uh, we helped him get training as a nursing aide, and he just started a job two weeks ago. And so his girls are in school in Fairfax County, um, and uh, they're doing great. And so it's not that our church is great. It's not that I'm great. It's that that's, what, that's how God helps people. <laughs> like I said, Jesus' body isn't here. So who's going to go get Daniel off the bus shelter and who's going to fly his family here? Like, we get to do that. That's the really cool thing, is our church gets to do that stuff. I told the people in the church, I was like, Daniel's family is going to be coming and you're paying for the plane tickets. So, give to the deacon's fund offering. And, and six months later, I got to stand up and say, hey, remember I told you that if you gave money for Daniel's family to come? Well, guess what? There they are. And they stood up and the whole church went crazy. I mean, it was so awesome because they were able to look and say, we did that. We reunited a family. I mean, how, how many people get to do something like that? And we've got 35 people. One woman from Congo lives with my family. She's an amazing young woman. Uh, one guy who's, at, who's in his senior year now at George Mason. He's a Tutsi from Burundi. And the Hutus and Tutsis have all this conflict. Now he's studying conflict re uh, resolution and international studies. And he just became a U.S. citizen three months ago. Uh, I got to teach him how to drive, a stick shift. That took a while. Um, but, like, it's awesome the stuff God can do with you. And refugee ministry is just an example. And there's probably a lot in the D.C. area. Is there, there's a huge amount of... I know there's a huge amount of Ethiopians. Yeah. That's right. So the, the point is just that it's where it, it doesn't matter. Like, all you have to do is have a heart. Like, you may end up the soccer mom married to some CEO, you know, living in a million dollar house. But if you get all cozy and comfortable, you're going to miss the fact that there are other soccer moms whose lives are falling apart and are just putting on a good show. And if you have the courage to move into their life, God can do just as, just as amazing things among the soccer moms as He can do with refugees. So it's not all about serving the poor and the destitute. That's the point. Is it doesn't matter where you go. There's broken people everywhere. Yeah? It's called Gospel Rescue Mission. 
It's in Chinatown. Yeah. It's just on the east end of Chinatown, and uh, they have a men's program and drug rehab, and then around the corner they have a little uh, uh, place for women called the Fulton House of Hope. Thanks. Sure, thanks.